When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Being the Ricardos opens in theaters this weekend, telling the behind-the-scenes story of I Love Lucy. I spoke with daughter Lucy Arnaz in 2019, when Fathom Events screened I Love Lucy, a colorized celebration in movie theaters nationwide. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure. Good to talk to you again, Jason. How exciting is it that they're even putting this on? And, you know, I mean, you really couldn't do this with too many shows. You know, you couldn't build a whole nationwide re-release in a theater. But this one is so beloved. Why? I mean, why do you think that it's, a, it's a special case where you actually can bring this back? Well, first of all, it never went anywhere, but it's never been on the big screen. So it's it's still available, obviously, to watch on television of various channels and streaming and DVDs and all that jazz. Even the colorized episodes have now been released as a DVD, which is great, 16 of them. But, um, you know, we don't own I Love Lucy. My brother and I and our estates don't own it anymore. They, my mother and father sold that show back to CBS in the late 50s. So that's a misconception. A lot of people think we have something to do with I Love Lucy. We don't. We share in the merchandising rights and things like that, which is fun. And God knows, put my children through college. But because we're a, a nice partnership with CBS, this is all very celebratory and, you know, one thing helps the other. And any time you can bring in a new generation to appreciate that property, that show and the comedy, it's a good thing. And I think the fact that they've made a party out of this, decided to release it on the big screen, which is you just don't do that very often, uh, Fathom Events is kind of a cool organization because they've started to do these types of wild things that can be seen by millions of people in one night that you go to the theater and they started with you know concerts and broadway shows and things like that and now why not do episodic television you know two and a half hours of that but the fact that it's been colorized a lot of young people have sort of you know found it for the first time most people don't care that it's black and white and it's uh, it's a funny show it doesn't matter if it's black and white or color it certainly doesn't impressed me one way or the other. I just like the show. But I find that a lot of uh, other people are very happy to see it colorized, and it makes a, a new audience to go and find a reason to watch it again. So it's really just a celebration of the the art that that show was, the art of comedy. It was such a brilliantly written and produced and acted show on so many levels that it it deserves a party. Yeah, and you're talking about, you know, the art of of comedy, it, it's it's got to be the most influential sitcom ever. You could say, you maybe even argue as the greatest. You know, you could do Seinfeld and Cheers and all the rest. But I mean, I love Lucy. Uh -huh. would definitely have a claim to that title. What do you think? You mentioned the art of it. What is it? Just the way that you know the first one that they could, um, 
you know, not only, you know, a female driven show at the time and an interracial couple at the time. I mean, there's so many groundbreaking things about it looking back, but yeah. is, it, is it also no, just how they would interweave multiple storylines? No, I think when I said the art of it, I meant this is truly one of the great comedy shows of all time. It, to me, it's like going back and studying Laurel and Hardy. It's going back and studying Buster Keaton or Chaplin. Uh, that show was so well put together. It wasn't just my mother's brilliance or my father's, you know, great straight man and their wonderful chemistry together on stage. It was brilliantly written. They had two writers for, I think, four years, Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Martin, who wrote all those shows. And then they added just two more for the rest of the shows, two other Bobs, Bob Weisskopf and Bob Schiller. And when you think about some of the shows today, most of them, funny as they are, they're, they're mostly written by committee. You know, there's a writer's room. There's a whole room full of writers contributing storylines and ideas. And, and it's brilliant. But this is kind of amazing that they understood how to set up a problem within the first two minutes of the show. What do you need? What's the need? I want what? And I can't get because. Boom. Done. And you're in. And they never made fun of anybody. You know, it wasn't... Um, sort of humor that is current events humor so that you can put down a political party or it was just about friends and about family and about the kinds of wants and desires that everybody has through the through the decades for, for generations so it still holds up today and we still laugh at it because we're going through the same kinds of things right now it's uh it's somebody the lucy ricardo character who is kind of childlike in the sense that she wants things and is told, no, you can't, can't have that for whatever reason. And then she tries to figure out a way to get around that. And she gets into trouble and she has terrible predicaments happen to her. And at the end, somebody puts their arms around her and forgives her and tells them that they love them. I mean, isn't that what we all want out of life, right? This unconditional love combined with as much laughter as possible. Absolutely. Um, you've talked about the great writing team and, and just all the actors, your parents, William Frawley, Vivian Vance. I mean, there was such a great team. Um, let's go through. Yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with it, with, um, you know, how recent the, the episodes are in fresh of mind. But if you if we can, I want to tell the listeners, you know, the five episodes that will be screening here and if you have you know any memories of them. So the first one is the million dollar idea, which was 1954 with the salad dressing based on her Aunt yeah. Martha's recipe. Um, do you uh-huh. get any memories of, of that one? And what, what sticks out that you makes know, you crack the, up with that one? The, disapp- the disappointing thing about true memories is that I was a baby when they were doing these shows. <laughs> I was born six weeks before they started filming the Aunt Lucy show. So yeah. I was only just coming into my you know cognitive mind when they were almost finished with I Love Lucy. I remember going down on the set when I was about six. And I remember some of them watching some of them. But most I watched these shows on television in reruns later, like right. most of America. So I don't. But I think I remember hearing at one point a little bit of trivia. I don't have my notes in front of me right this minute because I'm <laughs> I'm actually out in my car. And I pulled over to park to talk to you. Oh, thank I don't you. Have those notes. <laughs> this was sort of a last minute thing. I didn't have the notes with me. But I believe that that Martha's salad dressing, Aunt Martha's, might have been the one that they first showed was the first film showed to the um the men in services you know over in the war and different things the, the allied services corps first time they ever took a show like that and showed it to the servicemen and women and that was kind of interesting that had never been done before 
But I haven't seen that show in so long. That's actually one of the ones I'm looking forward to seeing because I've got tickets to go that night too, and we're in Palm Springs and we're going to go. So, because <laughs> one of the things that amazes me is that when I go back and try to look up some of these, if somebody's asking me a question about it, and I do a little bit of research, I pull out some of the episodes on DVD and I watch, and I think, oh my God, there's so many funny episodes, funny bits in other episodes that nobody ever mentions. Right. You know, you don't even see, because we concentrate on the three or four most popular, and then they go around and around again. But there are, you know, almost 200 shows, and very few of them were terrible. Very few of them were like, ugh, that wasn't the least bit funny. And there's so many that are just really brilliantly laid out, comedic, almost charades, you know, mime bits that they did. And um, you'll see that when you watch some of these shows. The physical comedy and honoring that is just astounding. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's so many uh, beyond the ones that, you know, that, that are screening here, the ones that everyone talks about. Um, uh-huh. But I know one of the ones that is screening, I, I guarantee we all have memories of this one, which is Vitamina Vegemin. Oh, sure. I, right. I still, yeah. I, I still quote, um, are you unpopular and do you pop out at parties? <laughs> well, um, right. I mean, obviously, you mentioned you weren't alive for all of these, but. Do you remember, like, just tell tell our listeners, you know, why you think that's still so funny? Is it- well, that's why I call it the art, you know. It's the art of comedy. First of all, it was written brilliantly. And if you looked at the script, you would see so much of this, what my mother would call the black stuff, which is really just stage direction, which told her exactly what she's doing. And exactly, oh, now you're starting to feel the effects of the first. Now you you can't really focus where the director is. Now... I mean, it's point by point by point how it's going to go down because the writers thought it all out in advance. They didn't leave it up to her to have to figure it out. They only had three and a half days of rehearsal. It's not like a three-week run in a play where you can rehearse day after day after day and come up with brilliance. You you better have this together. So they wrote out the routine brilliantly. She memorized it flawlessly, and they did it in one take in front of an audience, no retakes. And to watch her go from zero to 100, slowly, meticulously, and believably, I highlight the word believably because that's where the real art comes in. You never see her trying to be funny. You see her reacting to exactly what just happened, whether it was a swallow with a taste or it was one too many swallows or it was the heat in the theater or it was, you know, a fly and whatever. Right. She's reacting to something real, and we believe the situation because it was so brilliantly constructed, and that's why we laugh. That's the art of comedy. Absolutely. It's. I mean, it's. I think TV Guy voted it like the number two best TV episode. So I mean, it's it's a it's a legend. It's pretty, um, it's pretty flawless. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Anyone wanting to write co- sitcoms, go study that one or act in them for yeah. that matter. Uh, right. All right. So the third one they're showing. Is Pioneer Women. Um, this is when um, Lucy and Ethel revolt over their housework and want modern conveniences. So Ricky and Fred say, "All right, we can. Right. We bet you we can survive longer um, with with anything invented after 1900, including electricity." Uh, right. Talk about. I mean, e- either either if you remember the episode, if you remember it, share. You know, wow, it's so funny to you, or more more broadly, uh, how the show sort of tackled those gender dynamics between husbands and wives that weren't really being talked about at the time. Yeah, I don't think they thought about it in terms of gender dynamics in those days. I think they were looking for comedy, and there was comedy in the fact that women wanted more. 
and Lucy for sure wanted more. She was a frustrated, you know, uh, performer. She wanted to be on stage and she was gutsy and she had a lot of chutzpah, you know, and, and if she wanted something, she was going to figure out a way to get it. And each show seemed to have a little bit of that thread in it. Um, but it, but because it's just men and women have been going through that kind of push pull, let's call it for a long time, right? Probably all the way back to pioneer days. And uh, that's funny that it's called the pioneer episode, but you know, <laughs> caveman days, I can do this. No, you can't. Yes, I can. You know, I can do it. And, um, I remember that show because I was, I said I wasn't alive for most of them. I was alive for all of them, but I was, you know, a minute and a half old. But I do remember talking about that show a lot for two reasons. First of all, there are a couple of brilliant comedy uh, physical scenes in that. Unlike most shows, there's really only one big boppo, you know, payoff scene. There's a payoff scene with Ricky and Fred, and then there's the big payoff scene with Ethel and, and Lucy with the bread, baking the bread, which just goes on and on and on and on. And when that bread comes out of the oven, <laughs> it's so funny. And the show's laid out so well that you, you go along with the story, even though it never occurred to me until like last Tuesday that the pan grew with the bread. <laughs> the <laughs> right, pan. right. Because it's got to go out of the oven. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, that, that can't happen but I've watched this show for 68 years and it never occurred to me until Tuesday. You know what I mean? Like it's so brilliantly written that you don't care. You just you suspend your disbelief. You don't care. And that was real bread, by the way, that was real <laughs> bread. The property department made real bread that long. How did they do that? I have no clue. They got some bakery to figure out a way and they put it in that space and pushed it from the other side of the scene. And when the show was over, they sliced it up in hundreds of pieces and put peanut butter and jelly out on the stage and gave it to the audience. <laughs> so, and But then there was the scene with my father trying to cook and the rice and it overflows and he has to get the big bowls and scoop out the rice. And, and he falls, if you remember, he falls down. And I think that he had planned to slip and look clumsy, but he literally slipped and fell and he hurt himself and he fractured a couple of ribs in that fall. But he didn't find out about it until following two days after they filmed the show because he just kept right on going because that's what you do. You know? Wow. But um, what they do for their art. Absolutely. Yeah, that bread. That's a good point. I never thought about the pan, but yeah, that bread image <laughs> of it growing, that's just it's burned into my mind. Yeah, it's a great As payoff, is, right? After you set it up so many times about making it bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger, that's the best payoff in the world. Absolutely. Um, and of course, the, the fourth of the, you know, out of five here, we got two more. The fourth one, um, also the job switching, it's when Lucy and Ethel go to work in the candy factory. Of course. We'll all remember right. the, the candy conveyor belt, which um, right. I I actually, was that, that seems like that was almost an homage to uh, Charlie Chaplin in modern times when he's tightening the bolt. Yeah. It was. Um, they decided they would actually steal from that idea, yeah. Try to imagine those writers watching Chaplin and being like, ooh, let's do our own version of this. Or, or take me into why it's so funny watching them and finding new places oh. with those chocolates. Well, there's, there's two answers to that double question there. But the first being that my mother and my dad didn't sit around with the writers and give them any ideas at all. Bob and Madeline or Bob and Bob and Bob and Carol, you know, Bob, Carol, Tim, <laughs> Alan, all the Bobs and the Madelines came up with their own ideas in their room and figured it out amongst themselves how it would work and then presented it at the first reading to mom and dad. Now, sometimes my father would see the script before my mother, but 
they didn't give them ideas as to what we're going to do. They might say, we have an opportunity to get John Wayne as a guest star. Can you come up with something like that? But they wouldn't tell them how to write the plot or anything. They would figure them out that out themselves. But I know that Madeline said at one point that they were inspired by remembering the comedy of Chaplin. They were inspired a lot with the stuff that Vivian and, and Lucy did, even in the following series, the Lucy Show series, by a lot of uh, Laurel and Hardy routines and, um, you know, the great, the great steal from the great. That's what that's people that Laverne and Shirley stole from I Love Lucy. You know, just it's a compliment of sorts. And um, I know that the lady, there's two great scenes in the in the job switching episode that takes place in the chocolate factory. The first one is where she's trying to learn to make mush the chocolate around, you know, and it seems like great fun. And then the other lady is there, stone, you know, dr- dramatic, no sense of humor. And she was actually a lady who worked at C's Candies at the farmer's market in Los Angeles. Mm. And they got her. She's a real lady who really, and you can tell when you watch her that she knows exactly what she's doing. She pulls off a tiny little bit of the nugget, and then she wraps it in the chocolate and puts a perfect little dot, you know, down there. And mom thinks that's hysterical, and she does it, and it's just a slob of goo, you know. But then again, the black stuff in the stage direction calls for this fly. And Lucy suddenly realizes there's a fly, and it flies around her head, and it flies up to the right, and it flies to the left, and it's lands in the side of the chocolate and she tries to hit it and then it flies away and it lands on the woman's shoulder. All of that is written down. She tries to hit it and then suddenly she's smacking the woman with chocolate on her face (laughs) and the woman slaps her back, right? Like, how dare you? Well, the woman couldn't believe that the director was telling her that she should slap Lucille Ball back with chocolate on her hands. She she didn't want to do it. And she kept saying, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's pretend. It's what she said. No, that's not pretend. It's real chocolate. I don't want to do that. So when you watch this, they cut away pretty fast right after that happened. The editor went, okay, cut. Because you can almost see the lady, after she smacks my mother with the chocolate, bite her lip not to laugh. (laughs) And then you go to the other scene where she ends up with Ethel, and they're going to try to, oh, wrapping candy, that should be much easier. That's going to be much easier. And then that's freaking brilliant, you know, when it. Yes. I mean, we can all imagine ourselves in that position. What would we do? Oh, this looks easy. Oh, and then, oh, it's easy. The brilliance of that show is that you can always imagine yourself in, in her shoes. It's not totally unbelievable how she gets where she gets. It just gets stretched to sort of an enchanted sense of play, which was what my mom used to describe that type of acting. She said, Viv and I called it an enchanted sense of play. I love that. Yeah. That's the perfect way to describe it. it's real, but it's just a little elevated, you know? Absolutely. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah, I forgot about the – you're right. I remember the conveyor belt scene, but thanks for pointing out the prior scene. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then the fifth fifth, uh, and final episode that's part of this uh, retrospective screening um, is L.A. at last. It's when the Ricardos and Mertz is finally – you know, they arrive out in Hollywood and there's that great thing at the restaurant with William Holden. Um, Yes. Talk about why, I mean, not only Bill Holden, but you mentioned John Wayne a few minutes ago. I'll, I'll never forget that scene mm-hmm. with his boots in the, in the uh, you know, the, right. the cement of the Walk of Fame. Yes. But talk about why yes. they're moving to L.A. Uh, sort of opened it up for some more of those, you know, cameo appearances that are now iconic. Well, they always had, from what I was told by the writers, and then later my mother talked about it somewhat on talk shows and things, that, you know, because they were the number one show for so long, Agents wanted their clients to be on that show. It was a good guest gig to get. 
And uh, so there was that, and they could never really come up with enough reasons for some celebrity to be at the Tropicana or the, you know, downtown to where Ricky worked or suddenly end up in their apartment in New York. And it was, you know, after several seasons of I Love Lucy, so it's like you want, what's a new idea? What's a different direction we can take them in? And they thought, Ricky gets a job to get to go to Hollywood. So let's take them to Hollywood. And then there's all those stars. So it was just really an opportunity to open up the stories to something they hadn't done before and an opportunity to be able to use all the people who wanted to be on that show. Absolutely. Um, so those are the five that are going to screen. Um, and yeah. uh, But I know also, um, tell me your, your memories, because you worked, uh, you made your acting debut at a young age. And I know your brother, Desi Arnaz. No, oh, and that's been different his kids. nemesis his whole freaking life. A lot of people think that Desi played Little Ricky on I Love Lucy. Not true. It was a wonderful little actor named Keith Thibodeau, who was often credited as Richard Keith. They gave him some fake stage name, but his name was Keith Thibodeau. He's still around and playing drums. He has his own band. He plays phenomenal drums. He played drums when he was three years old, which is why they hired him, because he was a, a, a drummer with the Horace Height Orchestra at three and a half years old. Can you imagine? And he looked enough like my father that they thought this is a perfect bit. And my brother was just born. I mean, he had just been born and the kid grew up on the show very quickly. Like within a year, the kid was three years old, if you remember. So yeah. my brother was never little Ricky. And it's good to clarify that. So those two things you learned today. We don't own I Love Lucy, and he was never Little Ricky. <laughs> and well, and I did not make my my debut on television on the Here's Lucy show. I actually made it on The Lucy Show, which was her second series. I did little bit parts a couple of times on that show, playing a character named Cynthia, her daughter's best friend. And then years later, when she decided to change her series, she invited my brother Desi and I to play her children for real on the Here's Lucy show. And that's the six years that I did with her. Gotcha. Well, that must have been a real big treat. Uh, before we run, you've been generous with your time, but speak to um, Desilu Productions. We wouldn't have Mission Impossible or Star Trek. All these big you know, franchises would maybe not exist today without... I always hate to let the air out of the balloon when somebody asks me this question. And Oh, no. Here we go. <laughs> acknowledge. Well... Here's the deal. That's been something that's been blown way out of proportion. If it wasn't for her, there'd be no Mission Impossible and no Star Trek. And she ran Desilu. My father ran Desilu Productions for years. And he hired wonderful people to help him do that. My mother and my father divorced in the 1959, and she bought him out. And she was then forced to be the head of the studio. Mostly she let the suits run the studio. She continued to play her part. She played Lucy on her various shows. Uh, eventually my father opted out entirely and stopped running the studio even after they were divorced because he stuck around even after she bought him out. He, she, he stuck around, you know, for a while and helped run the studio. But that stopped for a while. And it was just one meeting out of all those years that she had, she was forced to run that studio and hated every bleeding minute of it. <laughs> she would tell you that hated. She didn't want to do any of that. She wanted to be an actor and get good scripts and make people laugh. But she was forced into it. One day, one afternoon, they asked about budget and those shows that were going to have to be eliminated because they were too expensive. And two of them were Star Trek and Mission Impossible. And she said, well, I like those. And my husband, Gary, likes them, too. And do we really have to cut those? Can't we save those, two? And they said, <laughs> OK, we'll try. And the, the rest is history. But that's the truth. She never wanted to be a big businesswoman and never was. She wasn't Sherry Lansing. She didn't run a studio. She didn't look for properties and develop them and. Uh, it was just something that happened to her, you know, um, gotcha. she was, she was good at it because she followed her instincts. Like my father would follow his instincts, And she was smart enough to let other people who knew 
how to do that job better, do that job. You know, awesome. but, so I'm setting the record straight. Look at me. I'm, this is like Lucy sets the record straight today. No, it's great. We're going to, yeah, it, we're going to have all these great, you know, record straight <laughs> moments here. Well, but that's, that, that, that's the insight only you can provide. I mean, you won an Emmy in 93 doing the documentary, Thank you know, you. and you, you grew up around it. Um, what, just speaking of that, just, this will be the final question so we can hop off here, okay. but, um, it's called a home movie. What sort of what sort of insight can you give us about from just that we didn't see on screen? You know, what things do you miss most of, you know, personally? Yeah, the reason I made Lucy and Desi a home movie really was because I, I was constantly asked, what was it like growing up with dot, dot, dot? And people usually ask the question with gigantic smiles on their faces. They already think they know the answer. In other words, oh, God, it must have been so amazing. You live with the funniest people and blah, 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 blah. And, and you hate to burst their bubble, you know, and go, well, it wasn't exactly like that. I mean, what it was was my brother and I were home and my parents worked all the time. A lot of people in the 50s had a father who worked. Very few had a mother who worked. Very, very few had a mother and a father who worked. And so we were at home a lot with very capable nannies and my grandma, but we didn't get to see our folks. So that sucked. And then there was divorce and all kinds of stuff that led to the divorce. So that sucked. And they were great people and incredibly talented people, geniuses in their own right. And I truly believe they loved each other. They just had problems and no way to figure them out. So we lived through all of that. And I made the documentary and called it Lucy and Desi, a home movie, because I made it and because it's filled with real home movies that I've, we collected over the years and lots and lots of interviews with people who grew up with them, who worked with them, who knew them better than I did to answer a lot of the questions I had, like you're asking me right now. And really what I could tell people was we lived very similar lives to your lives. Sure, they were stars and they had a fancy house in Beverly Hills and they had good cars and we didn't want for anything. We did, we're not super, super rich we weren't the Kardashians. We lived pretty simple lives compared to some of the people today. But we were okay. We didn't want for anything except time. We wanted for time with our folks. And any kid who is the child of two working parents can identify with that. And any kid who's been through a broken home can identify with that. Any kid who's had alcoholism come into their lives can identify with that. And I just kind of wanted people to say, be grateful for what you have. The grass is not always greener. Be careful what you wish for. You don't know what other people are going through. Everybody has their own story kind of a thing, right? Right. Well, thank you for that. That is, I mean, that is a far deeper revelatory answer than, you know, I'm sure most people get when they just throw that out there. So thank you very much. Um, you've been great with your time. I mean, this is this is great. And, um, you know, before we run, any, you know, in closing, anything you want to tease that you're working on? What have you been up to? What are you working on next? Plug something for us while we're here. <laughs> okay. Big news is I just became a grandmother for the very first time. And that's the best news I could tell you. And I had two grandbabies within a month of each other. My daughter had a grandson and my son Joe, my daughter Kate had a grandson. My son Joe had a granddaughter. So that has been number one on my schedule now. Very excited to be spending time with them. And I'm still out doing concerts. I just got back from the East Coast doing a slew of summer concerts. I have a, about a month and a half off, and then I go back out again. And uh, that's my world right now, enjoying life with my husband and enjoying my family and singing and dancing.
Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, you stay busy, and congrats on becoming a grandma. That's that's great. Thank you. Lucy Arnaz, thanks so much, Lucy. You've been great. You are very welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you again. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.